Hi, everyone. My name is Noel. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been around for the last couple of months, you know we have been in a doozy of a series where we've been tackling some pretty difficult topics. Some of them have been more controversial than others, but they've all been difficult. And what we've tried to do is to approach Scripture and, and let the Word of God determine what our position should be on each of these topics. And we've let Scripture also define for us what our posture should be toward those who disagree with those in our culture. And today's a unique one because of the nature of this topic. And I don't remember the last time we taught on this from stage in a full form, but today we're going to talk about pornography. Mm -hmm. And Pastor Tony Powell from our Westside Venue is going to tackle this one. And I was reading the stats yeah. on pornography. It is, it is frightening. It's scary. Mm -hmm. It almost makes me ask the question whether we can even avoid porn at all in our culture today. If just what, what are your thoughts on yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, in a complete sense, the only way of doing that is getting rid of all your technology and never leaving your house. Being I mean, I mean, Yeah, basically. I mean, pretty much. <laughs> but, but no, what you're getting at is very true in that I think with the rise of technology and accessibility to technology, but also just kind of it's become part of mainstream culture. You know, it shows up in, in movies and shows that you're like, I don't even know why this is here but there seems to be a desire for it just in entertainment. And so it is very ubiquitous and it's very difficult to just completely go without ever seeing it. Well, and, and that's that kind of leads to how we tend to approach it. It seems right. like most people approach pornography either like shrugging their shoulders, like, well, there's nothing I can do about that. I'm just gonna see it everywhere I go. Or becoming so shamed filled and, 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 and just kind of locking down their life, right? Mm -hmm. Is there a better way? <laughs> I think there is, you know, and I do think it, it's, we see in the scripture what we should do with, with sin and, you know, pornography use, we really believe it's, it's lust. It's, it's a violation of the image of God in people. And so what we do is we go to the scripture like other sins. We confess to God, we confess to others and, and we trust in the spirit's work mm. to, to change us and we walk in freedom. I really believe we can do that. But it, this isn't one of those sins where, oh, this is a completely different, different approach, but there are some unique ways that we can walk in freedom of, of pornography. And I'm excited to talk about those. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you tackle this one today. Uh, you know the drill by now. If, if, you're, if this isn't your first time here, uh, there is a QR code in your handout, or you can go to rivchurch.com slash questions to submit any questions you have from the series. We're going to have one more night of discussion, and that's going to be on Sunday, November 12th at 7 p.m. at our Rio Town venue. And so any questions that you submit, we're going to try to tackle with the, some of the teachers and some other folks from our church on that night. And so without further ado, uh, Pastor Tony Powell. All right. Good morning, Riverview. It's good to be with you today. My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I am usually over at the West Side venue, but grateful for the opportunity to be here at the whole venue with all of you today. So we are in our final week of our About That series that we started back in early September. And if you've been with us throughout this series, you've heard us teach on a variety of different topics. And really with every sermon, our goal has been to answer two questions. The first question we've been striving to answer is what has God told us in his word about this topic? And to do that, what we've done is we've opened our Bibles together week in and week out. Because here at Riverview, we believe that God's word is how we understand who he is. It's how we understand who we are. It's how we understand the things in life that God really cares most about. 
And then the second question we've been answering is this. In light of what God has said in his word, how then should we live? What should our posture be? The topic that I'm teaching on today is the topic of pornography, which I know is a very sobering topic. I know it can be a topic that is very personal uh, to some of us in the room today. But, but months ago, as we were whiteboarding topics as an elder team, uh, in preparation for the series, we really felt like this was a topic that needed to be addressed. Because it's an area of our life where many of us may struggle with sin. It's a place where we take God's design and context for sexuality, and we engage in it in a way that does not honor him or bring him glory. And this is really because of our sin nature. Each and every one of us, we each struggle with sinful desires in ways that we want to live instead of the way that God has called us to live in his word. And I am no different. I really wanted to start this morning by letting you know that I am not an expert on this topic, okay? Well, I am speaking about this topic as a sexual sinner. That's who I am. Every part of me has been impacted by my sin nature. But because of my faith in Jesus, I'm also a saint. I am a son of God. I have the spirit in me, the Holy Spirit, making me more and more like Jesus as I trust him. And the same is true for you if you are a Christian. Even though you may continue to struggle with sin, God has saved you. And he is committed to changing you through the power of the Spirit to becoming more and more like Jesus every single day. This is a promise of God that we can rest in. So this is the place. This is where I wanted to start this morning. And this is where I think it's best that we, we jump off of this topic from. But here's the roadmap. I'm going to answer a few questions for us this morning. This is going to be how the sermon goes. First, we're going to talk about what does the Bible tell us about sex, about God's design of sex? Secondly, how does pornography lead us away from God's good intention and design for sex? And then finally, what should our posture be? How should we live our lives today as followers of Jesus in light of this topic? So if you have a Bible with you, you can go ahead and open up to the book of Genesis. We're going to be starting in Genesis 1 today. That's where we're going to start. And I'm not sure if you've noticed, but many of our sermons in this About That series have started in Genesis 1 and 2. Have you noticed that? A lot of sermons have. And I think that's because Genesis 1 and 2 are the only chapters in the Bible that show us what the world was like without sin. Those chapters show us humanity and relationships, and, and spirituality, in the ways that life was meant to be experienced. While the last two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, they paint a future picture for us of the new heavens and the new earth, free of sin, Genesis 1 and 2 are the only chapters where we see God and humanity in right relationship with one another. It's in these chapters we actually see God's creation of sex. Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 27, and then we're going to jump to Genesis chapter 2. It says this, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And then Genesis 2, verse 23, and the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, and yet they felt no shame. 
So here, in the first chapters of Scripture, we see that sex was a good gift that God gave Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. And as part of their job to rule over creation, they were to be fruitful. They were to have sex. They were to fill the world with people. And it's actually here that we see the relational context that this was meant to happen within. The text tells us, it says that a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. So what we see here very early in the scripture is that sexual union was meant to occur between a husband and a wife exclusively in the context of a marriage. Genesis 2 shows us the power of this when it tells us that they become one flesh through this bond. It's a powerful and unifying thing that happens. And in God's love for us, he designed that sexual union to be pleasurable and to be fulfilling. That's why we have so many poems and songs and works written throughout history about it both in the Bible and outside of the Bible. You, you have a book in your Bible all about sex. It's the book Song of Songs. It's right in the middle. Time Magazine has a story they published 20 years ago where this author was really wanting to dive deep into the love life of, of adults. And he, and he began his article with this quote. He says, of all the splendidly ridiculous, transcendentally fulfilling things humans do, it is sex that most confounds understanding. What in the world are we doing? <laughs> I think it's a funny question. Why are we so consumed by it? The impulse to procreate may lie at the heart of sex, but bursting from our sexual center is a whole spangle of other things. Art, song, romance, obsession, rapture, sorrow, companionship, love, even violence and criminality. Why should this be so? Did nature simply overload us in the mating department? Or is there something smarter and subtler at work? some larger interplay among sexuality, life, and what it means to be human. This article tries to figure out from a secular point of view how our love lives shape us as human beings. And I think that last question he asks is so striking. Is there something smarter or subtler at work, some larger interplay among sexuality, life, and what it means to be human? Yes, there is. <laughs> That something smarter at work was God. Sex was his idea. He designed it. He created it. He gave it purpose. He gave it boundaries within it was to be enjoyed. And not only was it part of God's commission that he gave to humanity, but it was to be enjoyed within an exclusive relationship that would point to a future savior and the people he would come to rescue. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Ephesians, and he talks about the relationship between husbands and wives and how it is a picture of something greater. And he does that by first quoting Genesis 2, the verse I just read. This is Ephesians 5, verse 31. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So that's Paul's callback to Genesis chapter 2. But then look at what he says in verse 32. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Here we see that a marriage relationship points to something greater. How a husband and wife exist together and serve one another, that relationship points to the relationship Jesus has with us, his bride, the church. So early on in scripture, very early, we see that sex is a good gift that God has given us in our humanity that it's meant to be enjoyed within marriage. 
for procreation, for enjoyment, and for worship of him. But just like everything else in the first two chapters of Genesis, sex was impacted negatively by sin and the fall of mankind. Because of our sin nature, we pursue sex in ways that are outside of God's intentions. And when we do that, it ultimately leads us further away from him instead of closer to him. And I think that we do this actually in two directions. One, we either make sex out to be ultimate, where it becomes what we should pursue in life more than anything else, or we go the opposite direction and we lower sex to something that's purely physiological and instinctual. When we, when we lower it, we see it as nothing more than an animalistic need, that we're no different than anything else in life that needs to procreate. And when we go either of these directions, we make sex out to be something that God never intended. So first, let's start over here. When we wrongly make sex out to be ultimate. When we do that, we may think that instead of sex as being one of God's good gifts he's given us, it is the gift. It is the thing we should pursue with more fervor and more veracity than anything else in life. You know, I think as Christians, we can often be guilty of this in our attitude toward it. Because as followers of Jesus, I think we often wrongly make good gifts out for some people, out to be ultimate gifts for all. And when we do that, we fo when we focus more on the gifts, we don't focus on the giver. <laughs> we don't focus our attention on God, the one whose idea it was in the first place. And sex isn't the only thing we do this with. I think this happens in thinking about sex, marriage, and children. Each of those things are good gifts. However, they are not prerequisites to a full and joyful life on earth. See, as Christians, we're often guilty of elevating those very things over life with Christ. We make people feel less than for being single or for not having children. And when we do that, we make good gifts that God has for some out to be ultimate gifts for all. And when we look at the scriptures, we see how wrong we are to do this. Jesus himself was unmarried and celibate. Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus lived a fulfilling and satisfying life, a joy-filled life on this earth without a spouse, without children, and without sexual experiences. The apostle Paul, same situation. He was unmarried and celibate. He even went so far in his letter to the, in 1 Corinthians, his letter to the church in Corinth, he said that he wished that some of them were single like he was. Because singleness and marriage are both gifts in and of themselves. Paul was able to live his life for Christ in a unique and powerful way because he was single. When sex becomes ultimate, that's when it becomes an idol. That's when we become enslaved by it. But just as it's wrong to elevate sex to this place it was never intended to be, it is also wrong to go in the other direction. And that's lowering it to something meaningless, to sex just being a physiological occurrence, an instinctual need that we have as human beings that just needs to be met. And I actually think this is the area where we see pornography show up. See, what pornography does is it cheapens sex and it takes it out of the context which God intended it. 
It removes the relationship. It undermines the union that exists between spouses. And it causes us to lust after people that we are not married to. More and more information every year is coming out about the impact of porn on the world. Current studies have shown that first exposure to pornography is between the ages of 9 and 13. So that's a third grader to seventh grade. And over the last few years, this number has trended younger and younger as technology use has advanced. When young people are given smartphones, they're often given a smartphone with unrestricted access to everything that it can give to them. And this is often the first place that young people are exposed to pornography. So parents, I just want to give you, just, just be wise and be mindful as you think about your children and the technology that you're giving them. One report I saw shared in the 2019 annual statistics of one of the most visited porn sites in the world. This site had 42 billion visits per year, which breaks down into 115 million per day, 5 million visits per hour, and 80,000 visits per minute. Finally, studies are showing us how pornography impacts both men and women significantly. While studies show that, that more men, that men engage with it a little bit more than women, that gap is getting smaller and smaller. More and more men and women every year are viewing pornography. They're experiencing the negative side effects on their life, in their relationships, in their physical health, and in their mental and spiritual health as well. Now, the reason I shared these statistics with you this morning, it's not to be doom and gloom, okay? <laughs> it is really so that we understand the times in which we are living. Al Cooper is a therapist and an author on this topic, and he wrote about how pornography is uniquely um, challenging in a few ways when it comes to, to this thing compared to others. He talks about how pornography is accessible, affordable, and anonymous, First, he talked about it being accessible. 30 years ago, you needed to go to much greater lengths in order to access pornography. Back then, you didn't have a computer in your pocket. And while the advancement of technology has really been a blessing in many ways, it has also been a detriment to many people when it comes to their sexual lives, especially younger people. One study I found showed that 70% of pornography access worldwide is, is, it happens on smartphones. It doesn't even happen on computers anymore. Secondly, uh, Cooper wrote how uh, pornography is affordable. It can often be found online for free at no cost to the person wanting to look at it. And then finally, it's, it's anonymous. You know, you don't have to give any personal information uh, when you're looking for porn. And what this does is this increases loneliness because more and more people end up spending more time alone on their devices instead of out in the world in rich relationships and friendships with other people. Along with these statistics, there's been studies that have shown that there are physiological harms to people, to, to us as we consume pornography. First is that it is addictive. Viewing pornography does the same thing to your brain as taking certain drugs. It hits you with dopamine, so that you come back to it again and again. Because over time, the more you engage with it, you're lighting up the pleasure center of your brain. And then as you do that, you need it more and more, and it escalates to greater and greater depths. Finally, along with this, we've seen how pornography use, at the same time, it both increases depression and it decreases how you view yourself. 
The American Psychological Association, not a Christian organization at all, but this is what they wrote. They said, the saturization of sexualized images of females is leading to body hatred, eating disorders, low self-esteem, and depression. Where there used to be a group in the, in the world that, that talked about sexual liberation and how pornography, that can be a great thing for you. More and more science and data is showing the opposite. In the secular world, how pornography is actually harmful for everyone involved in many more ways than we think. So while these stats and these, this information helps us understand just how widespread a problem pornography is in the world today and the negative effects that it has on us, it doesn't actually help us understand why pornography is wrong from a sinful and moral standpoint. Why is engaging with pornography sinful? Well, there's a few reasons. First, we see Jesus in the scriptures talk about sexual sin. And when he does, he raises the bar. When you open your Bibles, you won't see the word pornography. But you will see, in the original language, the word pornea, which is where the word pornography comes from. That word is translated in your Bibles as sexual immorality. And that word is kind of a junk drawer term. It's, it's kind of a, any illicit sexual behavior outside of, of a marriage is what it's talking about. And it shows up about 25 times in the New Testament. And when Jesus speaks about sex, he actually goes beyond speaking about just sexual activity with another person. He talks about adultery of the heart, what's going on in, inside of us. This is Matthew chapter five, verse 27. These are Jesus' words. He says this, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. So he's going back to the Old Testament law, referring to what they, this group of people would have heard before. But then he says, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Here, we see Jesus speak with candor about the sin that exists in our hearts when we look at another person lustfully. While the Old Testament condemned adultery, sexual activity outside of marriage, Jesus shares how looking at another person with lust is like committing adultery with them in our hearts. This is what we are doing when we view pornography. We're committing adultery of the heart. The second reason that pornography is sinful is that it objectifies people. Back in Genesis 1, we, we saw today that human beings are made in the image of God, meaning that nothing in creation is of more worth and value than us. Nothing else in creation bears the image of God but people. But when we engage with pornography, what we are doing is we are lowering the status. We are lowering the status of humanity to becoming objects of our pleasure. When the truth is that person or those people, they don't exist for us. They don't exist to serve us. They weren't made for us in our pleasure. They were made for God in his glory. They are fellow image bearers of God like us. And the more and more we objectify people, the less and less human they become to us. And see, this has an impact on how we view people in general, people we actually know, that we interact with and have relationships with day in and day out. They become less and we become more. Pornography promotes this idea of objectifying people 
instead of seeing them and valuing them for who they truly are as fellow image bearers of God. The third reason why pornography is sinful is that it takes sexual fulfillment out of the context in which God designed it to happen. Anytime we partake of good things that God gives us outside of the boundaries that he's intended them for, it's, it's sinful. They become less about him and his goodness and they become more about us and our sinful desires. And we actually see in the scripture that this desire, it actually doesn't come from outside of us, but actually it starts here in our hearts. Jesus talks about this in Mark chapter seven. Look at what he says. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. You know, I think too often we can blame our desire to sin on the world outside or on the culture that we live in. If only we didn't have technology. If only entertainment and culture didn't idolize sex, then we wouldn't struggle with sexual sin. But what Jesus says here is that the problem that we need saving from, it's actually not external, but it's internal. It's not the big bad world out there, but it's our own hearts that need to change. For from within, out of our hearts, come sinful desires. That is why pornography, it is not merely a physiological problem, not a cultural problem. It is a spiritual problem because our sexuality is an area of our life where we need to submit to God. We need to trust in his ways above our own. We trust that by putting our faith in Christ, by living for him, that he will sanctify us, that our lives will grow, that we will look more and more like him as we grow in our faith. From the first chapters of Genesis, we see that sex is a good gift from God. From the words of Jesus, we see how looking at others lustfully is a sin. How when we view pornography, we're, we're committing adultery of the heart, a sin that we need saving from. And then finally, we see how each and every one of us, we need to be set free from the power of sin that, that exists in our hearts. We need to experience freedom in Christ. And that can only happen through faith in the gospel, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But now that we've opened the word and seen what, what God has told us about this topic, how then should we live? Well, I have four postures for us. And while these postures really do apply to, to the topic today, I just want you to know these postures align with any sin that you may find yourself fighting against today. The first posture is this. Look at Jesus more than you look at your sin. Too often, I think we go through our Christian lives focusing way more on sin than we do on Jesus. You know, maybe we have an accountability group or we have people in our life who really know uh, our desire to, to, to live a, a holy and righteous life. But when we get together with one another, what we say is, did you struggle this week? And the answer is probably, yes, <laughs> I did. Or this is a hard week. And so when we, we go through our minds saying like, just don't look at porn, don't do it, don't do it, don't sin. When we live that way, it doesn't really work. Because all we're, all we're telling ourselves is don't do this thing. 
Instead, what if we actually thought more about what we should be doing? Looking at Jesus, remembering what he has said about us in his word, remembering our identity in Christ, that we are no longer condemned. One book I read recalled a man coming to this realization when it came to his sexual sin. He said, however much I tried it, the willpower of just don't look at it never worked. I could go for a few days and then the whole left just had to be filled. But then God made me realize that my choice was not simply between sinning or not. It was between desiring Jesus who would satisfy or desiring something else which wouldn't. The struggle didn't become easy then, but it did become winnable because I realized I had to choose not to walk away from something, but towards someone. This man realized that instead of keeping himself from one thing, he needed to walk towards something greater. And it actually wasn't a something at all. It was a someone. And I love that he said that the struggle didn't become easy then, but it became winnable. When we're striving to live lives of sexual purity, we not only walk away from sin, we are walking toward Jesus. We strive to to focus on him, to believe in him more than giving in to the false promises that sin makes to us. I mean, we're reminded of this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse one, of where we should look when it comes to our faith. It says this, therefore, Since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down the right hand of the throne of God. We lay aside our sin We live our Christian lives with endurance, keeping our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross for us. Look at Jesus more than you look at your sin. The second posture is this, that we should be known in our Christian lives. Vaughn Roberts is an author and pastor. He, he wrote the book called The Porn Problem, which is a fantastic resource. It was very helpful for me in preparation for this sermon. But in it, he writes about the shame that can come along with sexual sin. And he writes this. He says, private shame so often leads to private despair. You know, for years, uh, I thought I was really good at managing sexual sin in my own life. I regularly viewed pornography It was a sin that I carried into my life when I became a Christian as a teenager. And it was a sin that I continued in as a follower of Jesus. And I had all the reasons why I thought it was okay. I didn't believe I was hurting anybody. I wasn't going into debt. Just thought it wasn't that big of a deal. But that wasn't true. My sin grieved God. It was idolatry. I was poisoning my mind. I was searing my conscience. I was dishonoring my future wife, who I was not yet married to, which turned into actively dishonoring her in my marriage as I continued in it. And by God's grace, I've I've experienced significant freedom in this area of my life, and it came through confessing it. It came through shining a light on it. It happened through being known, 
through finally confessing my sin, walking in honesty and grace and forgiveness alongside godly people like my wife and close friends in the faith that came through time in the scripture, through trusting in the Holy Spirit's help to help me continue walking in freedom. But it is often so difficult to let other people know about our struggle with sexual sin because it is an area where we feel immense shame. We often convince ourselves that no one else struggles with this sin like I do. And so, so instead of, of being known by others, we isolate ourselves from other people. But the scripture encourages us to do the opposite, to talk about it. James chapter five, verse 15 and 16. The prayer of faith will save the sick person. The Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. You need to know that this morning, you are not alone in your struggle against sin. The enemy wants to convince you that you are. That your sin is worse than what others experience. That no one would understand. We see in the scripture that Satan is described as a father of lies as, and as the accuser of the brethren. He will use lies to convince you that you are alone in your struggle. So we go through life then saying, if people knew the real me, they wouldn't accept me. And our private shame becomes our private despair. Jesus knows your struggle with sin. He knows your struggle more than you could ever communicate to another person. And he has promised to not let go of you. He won't. He has you in his hand. If you are a Christian, you are his, and he has promised to keep you forever. When you choose to bring your sin out into the light, out of the darkness, it loses its power. You're reminded that even though you still struggle with sin, you have others in your life that love you, that are praying for you, that are striving toward Jesus alongside you. That is why we are encouraged to, to walk in the light, to confess our sin, God made us for this. We see this in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Confess your sin to God and to others. If you're here today and a fellow Christian confesses to you, encourage them. They're confessing to you because they trust you and they love you and they need you. Help them look at Jesus more than they look at their sin. If you're here today and you need to confess to someone, don't put it off. Begin walking in the light today. And if you're married, I wanna encourage you this morning, confess your sin to your spouse. I know it's difficult to do that, that it may be scary, but walking in the light is what you are called to do. You are called to love God and to love your spouse. 
and choosing to bring your sin into the light, although it's a really difficult thing to do, it is going to be the best thing for you and for them. Now, I understand that after this sermon, you may be a person who needs care. You may be a person here today who struggles with this particular sin. Or you may be a person in a relationship who has been sinned against, where trust has been broken, where you've been hurt. You may not know who to talk to or how to get the help that you need. Well, whoever you are, we want to care for you. We do. We have a ministry here at Riv called Side by Side that exists to care for people in times like this. Men and women in our church who volunteer their time to listen and to care for people who need help. If that's you today, a side-by-side minister would love to care for you. Strive in your life to be known as a follower of Jesus. The third posture is this, is that we need to fight the good fight of faith. The apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to his good friend Timothy who had become a Christian as a part of Paul's ministry, but Timothy was pastoring a church. And and, um, he... Paul was really writing to encourage him and he was reminding him about the nature of the Christian life. He lists off these sins that people in in the church that Timothy was passing were struggling with and then he reminded Timothy of his calling as a Christian. This is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from these things, these sins, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. The life of a follower of Jesus is one where we fight the good fight. Don't forget what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. You can't miss what Jesus is saying because of the vivid illustration that he gives, the strong language that he uses. But it's really important for us to, to understand that Jesus is not suggesting that we all blind ourselves in order to keep ourselves from sexual sin because that wouldn't work. Remember? He talked about our hearts being the source. Our hearts needing to be the thing that changes. But what Jesus is getting at is that we should be ruthless in our pursuit of him. That our faith should be pursued with diligence as we fight for holiness. That we should remember we have an enemy that exists that would like nothing more than to pull us away from the truth of the scripture and what God thinks about us. When it comes to our sexual sin, there are things you should consider in your fight. First, include other people. Whether it's a side-by-side minister or a trustworthy friend in the faith, don't live your Christian life alone. Share your life with other people. Another thing you should think about is, is your relationship with technology. If certain technology you have is causing you to sin or, or helping you sin, consider getting rid of it. Yes, it may be difficult to live without a, an iPhone. You can do it though. It may be difficult to live without social media, but it's possible. That difficulty is a small price to pay if it helps you to walk in sexual purity. In any ways that you can, make it easier to pursue Jesus and harder to pursue sin. Fight the good fight of faith. The last posture is this, is that you need to remember God's promises to you. One of the greatest truths we need to remember in our lives is that God is with us. When we choose to believe in the gospel and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit moves in 
He indwells us. He continues the work that Jesus started. And if that is true of you, these promises of scripture are true for you as well. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity, but God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. And then finally, John chapter eight, the words of Jesus. Truly I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. So if the son sets you free, you really will be free. If you are a Christian, these promises are true for you and of you. You're a new creation. Even, as, even in your struggle with sin, you are secure in your place with your heavenly father. God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. In every temptation that you have, God is with you in it. He will provide a way out for you. And finally, if Jesus has set you free, you truly are free from the power of sin. You are no longer a slave, but you are a son or daughter of God. These promises are true, not because of anything you've done. They are true because of what God has done for you. Jesus came into the world to rescue us from all the ways that we fall short. He came to rescue us from our sins. And he did that by becoming sin for us. On the cross, Jesus took the full penalty of our sinful debt. He took on the full wrath of God. He bore that for us so that we wouldn't have to. It is through faith in him and what he has done that we can experience freedom in this life. Freedom from sin. A life of experiencing the fullness of God with other people. A life of joy where we choose to follow Christ and submit our lives to him instead of living for ourselves and our sinful desires. The gospel helps us remember that even though our struggle with sin continues in this life, it will never overtake us because Jesus has promised not only to save us, but to finish the work that he started. The apostle Paul puts this so well in his letter to the Philippians. This is how I'd like to end my sermon this morning. Philippians chapter one, verse six. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I do just, I do thank you for your word, Lord, that we do not have to go through life wondering about who you are, about who we are, about what you've done, about what you continue to do in us, God, I know that this topic is difficult and it's sobering and it's hard to hear. But Lord, Jesus is, is greater. <laughs> Lord, I pray that you help us today. 
look at Jesus, what he has done, who we are in him, more than we do look at our sin. Lord, that you would help us be a people who, who live lives where we're known. We're not hiding things in the dark, but Lord, that we are walking in the light with other people in community. Lord, I pray that you help us remember that, that our faith, it is, it is a fight. It's a good fight. That we have an enemy, Lord, that you have defeated and will defeat. But Lord, he, he lingers and he tries to convince us of these lies that are just not true. Help us fight against that with the truth of your word. And Lord, help us remember your promises that in you we are a new creation. Lord, that nothing can take us out of your hand, even our struggle with sin. Lord, I pray that you help us find help, talk with someone if we need to talk with someone. Lord, we thank you for this, this church community, this, this group of people, this family that you've given us. Help us walk together and spur one another on toward the good that you have called us to. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.